Happy New Year, podcast listener. It's been a year. It's been one year since we started this thing, and we're going to barrel into 2023 with a new goal in mind, and that is releasing the books into print. So my first episode for January, I'll probably do two episodes in January, um, but the first one is basically going to be a promo for book one. And a lot of you have tuned in since the beginning and listened to the audiobooks, and so thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I know most of you are friends and family who wanted to listen, and that's great. For anybody who has not listened to the books, I would suggest that you buy them in print and read them, because physical books are superior to audiobooks, and... Um, I don't know. That's just a fact. I, I like physical books. I like to hold them. I don't even like Kindle books. I want paper. And so, mostly for myself, I guess, I am going to publish the books, and they'll be available to purchase online on Amazon. And uh, I'll need everybody to definitely go buy one. Not because it's going to make me rich, but maybe it will, uh, you know, make me famous at least. Uh, At least more famous than I am right now. So all of you great fans out there, go buy the book on Amazon once it drops mid-month or late in the month. And give me a a good, you know, solid four-star review. Uh, Five stars are disingenuous, but four stars are good. Five star if you feel like it. And, uh... The review process really drives the algorithm on Amazon. So I do actually ask everybody to everybody who buys the book to write a review. But anyway, the episode today, the episode to start off the year, we're going to talk about A Long Way Back to Zion, book one, Yesterday's Dead, that's going to be releasing this month. And I want to talk about the introduction to each chapter what they mean, kind of give you some Easter eggs, maybe entice some of you to buy and read the book who haven't yet. And so that's what we're going to do. And I'm going to jump right into it. We're going to talk about the prologue of the book first, because the prologue is something that I added after the fact. Um, It's not something that I originally started the book with, and I added it because I thought that we needed you know, the the book doesn't open up slowly enough. It's like, it's almost as bad as Lord of the Rings. It takes like 100 pages to get to the actual story. And I thought we needed some more of that. So I added a prologue to explain what the world looked like um, in the in the very near future. Because the entire book covers the distant future or, uh, you know, 150 years from now. And I wanted to give the reader a view of the near future and kind of the road that we went down that led us to this place. And the prologue, uh, the introduction to the prologue, is just Six Semper Tyrannus. And that is the same as the intro to chapter three, and it's because both of these chapters are related. And we'll talk more about that when we talk about when we talk about chapter three. So the prologue centers around one character, and he's never named, and his he's called the old man. And the year is 2048. 
and the old man lives on Roanoke Island in North Carolina in the year 2048. And he is old, and he is dying. He has cancer, and he's a man who looks back onto his life and is full of regret. Um, He's somebody who never really cared much about politics and culture until it was late in his life. He is supposed to be kind of the quintessential Joe six-pack guy who just went to work and worked hard, and when he was young, he kind of indulged in the party and hookup culture, and he was swept up in everything that was the culture for a very long time until he got old. And once he started to get older and the culture ran away from him, suddenly he's looking at his children who are nothing like him at all, really kind of detest him because of him being kind of older and not nearly as progressive politically as they are. And they never come home to see him. His wife leaves him or his wife has left him. Um, She too has been a victim of this culture and he has cancer and he's dying. And he has a secret. And this secret is that he has several illegal guns that he has kept because by the year 2048, it's apparent that some sort of gun confiscation has, well, not gun confiscation, gun ban has taken place. And the old man has all these guns that he didn't give up. And now he has no one to leave them to because his family would turn him in if they knew about them. And um, so he's, he's at this point in his life where he's got to figure out what to do with these guns. And so, instead of, you know, just leaving them in his house, he takes them and he buries them in a bunker that he has built um, outside of town, way out in the woods. And he leaves them in this bunker, and he leaves this cryptic message uh, of Six Semper Tyrannus. And I'll let you look that up. I've talked about it in an early episode, and I'll just let you look that up. Um, so the old man does this, he leaves all his guns in there, and then the very end of the prologue, he kind of watches the final death throes of his country, and America falls apart, there is a plague that, uh, that goes on across the globe to an extent, there's a famine that claims a bunch of, a bunch of lives, there's a civil war in his own country, nukes fall, genocides happen, and um, then he dies. And that's the end of the prologue. And then we move on to chapter one. Now, all the chapters have some sort of introduction, and what I want to do for this episode is read through these introductions. Some of them are longer than others. Some of them are pretty short. I might not read all the way through all of them, but I want to read these to you so that if you do buy the book, you'll have a little more insight. Maybe maybe I'll tell you something that you don't quite catch when you read it, because all of the introductions are supposed to be more on the... They're supposed to give you a, a peek at what's going on in the wider world. They're more artsy. They're more poetic. They are... It's, it's my way of trying to kind of paint a picture... Because the rest of the book is more of an action and adventure film, especially book one and book two are pure 
commercial type fiction. And I wanted to add some sort of, I don't know, artsy, literary type writing because that interests me more. And so I went back and I did that at the beginning of every chapter. And chapter one opens like this. The blind goddess was a headless statue that stood where her dead civilization had left her. She clutched a tablet in her left hand, and on it was written a date in a language no one could now read. Her right arm was broken off at the elbow. Beneath her, in the dark eddies of the bay, her head was obscured in the murk. Her former name may have been resting there as well, as no one now living in this place knew it any longer. Okay, this one's kind of a long one, so I'm going to stop there. But, Easter egg for you if you do buy the book. This is a description of um, the Statue of Liberty in New York that has been defaced. Its head's been cut off. Its arm's been broken off. And even though it is only the year 2080, everyone has forgotten the name of this statue that once that once was the Statue of Liberty. And I got this idea to write this introduction from a very famous painting called The, uh, the Fall of Rome. Um, and you've, I, I bet you that you've seen it somewhere before, even if you don't remember. It's a, it's a picture of Rome being sacked. And there's chaos all over the, the painting, and there's this giant headless statue. And there's fires, and the barbarians are invading, and people are leaping to their deaths off the walls. And it's a, it's a vision of Rome in collapse. And... It's very fitting for the opening of the book in chapter 1 because in the year 2080, when the book opens up, this is the downfall of America. And this thing is happening all around the country and all around the world called the chaos. And the chaos is mass civil unrest that is overthrowing and consuming a totalitarian government. All of the authoritarian laws that started back in the, you know, while we're living now and progress on through 2048 in the prologue are finally catching up to the people in charge. And the chaos is consuming everything, but because of how denigrated society is, there's no one left around to kind of build anything new. So everything just kind of collapses into tribalism and chaos. And that is the introduction to chapter one. Chapter two is called The Lord of Death. And chapter two opens like this. The Lord of Death sat upon his throne, and in his vacant eyes was the truth of the darkness of the man's heart. Surrounded by the other fallen men like him, all sounds were drowned in a beating sea of drums and ululations. Words were of no value in this horde of savagery, and so he spoke none. He looked beyond the shadowy ranks of his army and out into the darkness. Out there was his enemy, a single light, burning in the darkness, floating on a placid ocean. It was a challenge to his reign and his lordship over his lands. This was a light that could draw away his own disciples like the insects he knew them to be. That wouldn't be allowed to happen. The New World, Plymouth, Massachusetts, year 2179. 
So, chapter 2, we enter into the new world, the setting of the story, the year is 2179. And kind of like I did with chapter 1, chapter 2 is also something that I drew from a painting. And there's this painting of Attila the Hun, kind of surrounded by all of his cohorts, with this kind of evil look in his eye. And I imagine this same type of character is this dictator that is looking off to uh, the ocean, and he sees this boat out there in the ocean. And the boat is a refugee ship, and the refugee ship is called the Morning Dove. And this has a, I don't know, very pivotal role in the plot of the entire book series, because the the Morning Dove is a refugee ship headed to a mysterious survivor colony called New Hope. But I don't want to give too much away, so we're jumping forward to Chapter 3. And Chapter 3 is Sick Simper Tyrannus. That's all the introduction there is, and this one takes place in the same year, and it takes place on Roanoke Island, North Carolina. And yes, you guessed it, this is where our heroes of the of the book well one of our heroes of the book discovers a long lost forgotten storage container in the woods which is full of these guns and it's like a uh, it's like a cave in a adventure book where the the hero finds his sword that he is going to carry with him and and fight evil that's kind of the vibe of chapter three. And chapter three is where we meet one of the two main characters of the novel. That's where we meet Evelyn. And Evelyn is a young girl who is part of this refugee group that is headed to the colony of New Hope with her family. And again, I don't want to give everything away, so I'm not going to. Chapter four. Chapter four is the introduction of our second protagonist. And chapter three is very long, um, so I'm scrolling here. All right, chapter four. Chapter four starts like this. Robed in black, the buzzard wheeled silently in the sky. His eyes set in a hideous red skull, searched the earth for carrion. Of any and all creations under the blue dome of heaven, his life was the most comfortable in this new world. Once, long ago, he was reviled by the men who scurried below him on the earth, they had loved and revered his white-headed cousin, plastering his likeness on their flags and their money. But for the vulture, all they had was disgust. Now, though, it was he who was their emblem. The vulture was the symbol and the sentinel of a dead nation. Disfigured and bloated piles of the dead could be found in nearly every city and town, from one ocean to the other, all across the land. The plains, the mountains the woods, the deserts. No longer did men bury their kin in neat and sacred cemeteries. Now they drugged them outside of town and tossed them in a ditch, or a pit, or a wash. A grisly aroma of the scent of the dead wafted into the air like an offering, and the buzzard would feast richly every day. Along with him came the dogs, the wolves, the coyotes, like yellow-eyed jackals in the night. Then the rodents, screeching and greedy, the beetles and the blowflies followed in turn. 
A parade of scavengers and carrion birds marched from town to town like a vile carnival troop. Full-bellied and reeking, they mated and multiplied like mad things, but no matter how many they became, the dead still outnumbered them. This one is, I think, I don't know, pretty obvious. You have this vision of a buzzard, a vulture, has kind of taken the place of the eagle as the symbol of America because America has become this dead thing that no longer has any sort of life in it and people have lost it's also a hint of the plague which you'll hear a lot about early in the book and kind of drives the plot of book one there is this plague that is spreading all throughout the land and the plague is causing massive numbers of people to die. And this is the the hint you see of it is the buzzard traveling from town to town and never running out of, of bodies to eat. And then chapter four, we meet our second protagonist, Noah. Noah is this Texas bandit. He's not a hero when you meet him. He is a sort of survivor. He's done what he's had to to survive, and sometimes that means robbing and taking from people. And he has found himself in Galveston, Texas, and he is given this opportunity to do something he's never done before. And that opportunity is to act heroically for once in his life. And he's never done that before. And Noah, who is a depressed, kind of listless, sad young man, doesn't know why he takes this opportunity, because it's not very smart. But it's a, I don't know, it's a nod to all young men kind of yearn to do something heroic. There's a calling for it. And so Noah, in the... the, doing of this heroic act, he meets Evelyn, the other protagonist, and the two take off on this adventure that will become the entire book series. And uh, once again, I don't want to give too much away. I just kind of want to hook maybe some of you in to buying the book, or if you've already read this and listened through it, maybe enlighten you as to what some of these introductions mean so that you have, I don't know, a reason to go back and listen or go back and read and kind of see something you didn't see before. Now we get to chapter 5. Chapter 5 opens like this. The offering tottered before the fire and the flames danced, reflected in his cloudy, sightless eyes. He strained to hear a hint of the presence of his mother, but she did not speak. He had no name for her to speak nor did the other two offerings. Within the tribe, children were not named until they could speak plainly themselves. He was to be an offering for the future, so said the wise brother, descended from other wise brothers, going back to the beginning. The offering's blood would provide for the tribe's fortune in their hunts and victory over their enemies. Their enemies, those devils that clung to the old world and the ways of the old world, Those people brought nothing but evil upon the earth. They did not listen to the ways of nature. 
the ways of the dogs. The dogs showed the tribe what to be and what was, and so they were worshipped. That was the way. As the low growls began and the dogs advanced, the blind child screamed the only word he knew. No one answered him. The dogs rushed forward and did their sacred work as the tribe looked on, hopeful for the future. So this introduction is meant to introduce you to one of the savage tribes of people who now inhabit this landscape. And these people are called the Trackers. And the Trackers are a savage tribe that hunt with dogs and worship dogs and nature. And you see this as a kind of a common theme among some of these native tribes is the worship of nature and uh, these blood rituals. And the blood ritual of the trackers is to sacrifice, uh, you know, disabled young children to their dogs. Um, Because there's this old idea that is as old as humanity is, where certain tribes, certain groups of people would sacrifice their children in order for future success or rain or good hunts and you see it in a lot of different uh, a lot of different ancient savage cultures this idea of sacrificing the children for the sake of the adults and uh, I don't know it's in the bible it's why people sacrifice their children to bail it's why women get abortions um uh, I told myself I wasn't going to get political but there I went All right, let's jump forward to chapter 6. Chapter 6's introduction starts like this. It's another savage tribe introduction. The wanderer trudged down the long broken road seeking salvation. On his arms and neck, the open sores seemed to pulsate. It had been three moons since he was sent away from his village by the shaman. She read the truth in pine needles, mud, and the bones of an owl. He had been cursed. He had incurred this thing upon himself by venturing into the city and trading with the outsiders for an old-world magic item. It was a small rectangular object with a black face. The face would illuminate with magical light and play songs unlike the wanderer had ever heard before. Around his neck, the cursed thing was hung as a lesson to all the others in the village. None would speak to him, none would touch him until his task was complete and the curse was lifted. He fingered the cursed item absent-mindedly. So much trouble for such a tiny thing. No magic was worth this curse. As if judging him itself, the magic had disappeared even before he'd returned to the village. By then it was too late. The shaman had told him to travel south, by the lonely mountain, all the way to the Red River that flowed east into the unknown lands. He was to bury the item on the far bank of the great river. It was the only way to wash himself of his sin. Then, and only then, would the curse be lifted. Finally, he'd arrived. Before him, the red river bent and wound its way across the land like a vermilion serpent in the last rays of the setting sun. In the red clay dirt on the far bank, he knelt and dug a small hole with the last desperate strength left in his arms. Into the hole, he dropped his curse. 
and he covered it reverently. He stretched his arms wide and threw back his head, expectant of relief. Instead, a spear passed through his back, planting in the red dirt he was kneeling in. The wanderer coughed blood and clutched the shaft through his middle in disbelief. As his vision began to dim, he saw several shadowy figures approaching from the trees and the brush around him. Black as pitch, the shadows advanced like spirits, or demons, or worse. He realized there would be no forgiveness for him, no salvation from the curse. Now the specters were running, now piercing him again, now hacking. Then darkness fell. That introduction is your first glimpse of another savage tribe called the Night Watchers. And I like, I like to do these introductions of the savage tribes because all of the book itself, you are with these civilized kind of heroes that are struggling through this world. And you never get a lot of... They fight these savage tribes a lot, but you never get a lot of... I don't know, insight from the savage tribes tribes themselves, but it kind of shows you how these people are living and how far civilization has fallen, and it's to the point of primitivism again. And you have this man who is, he's gone to a city, and somebody trades him a, a cell phone from the old world that if they plug it in, it will still turn on and play music, and then as soon as he leaves the world, the city, of course, the thing doesn't work anymore, but uh, he's already had this curse put on him. And the curse, of course, is the plague. And this also gives you insight into how the plague is spreading across the nation. And in this case, you see the plague cross over the Red River and enter into Texas for the first time. Because the Night Watchers are cannibals, and they eat the people they kill, and this guy brings them the plague, and this plague will now infect the Night Watchers. And then later in the story, you will see the Night Watchers have migrated further south and west, and everybody's wondering why this migration has taken place. And it's because of the plague. The plague is driving people anywhere but where they're from because they... They're just driven mad by this this seeking of salvation where there is none for them. Okay, chapter 7 opens like this. The gathering storm pushed down from the far north. It dropped early snow on the Rocky Mountains. The bear, stoic and thoughtful, watched the snowfall with trepidation. The boar ate greedily in his den. On the plains... Fall lightning danced across the sky, and men on horseback thundered on the flanks of stampeding cattle. A king sat at table, reflecting on the fate of young men he had sent to war that had not returned. And from the Texas sky spit sparse, cold rain, while the blue-green clouds threatened much more. So chapter 7 introduction gives you a glimpse of the future, and a glimpse of other characters that exist in the book that you've not met yet. And in fact, some of them you won't meet until book two. You see the bear, who is not an actual bear. He is a person. He is a a kind of warrior from the mountains who is the president of a very small survivor colony of civilized people. You see the boar, 
who is the bear's twin brother and a villain who is leading a band of kind of savage people. And then you see on the plains these cowboys who are riding on the flanks of these stampeding cattle. And these are men from a Amarillo, Texas, which you're going to meet at the end of book one. And then the king, you see the king at table reflecting on the fate. Uh, the king you meet in another chapter or two in Austin. And all of these characters are kind of, it's just a quick flash of what they're all doing at the moment. And this gathering storm is a gunfight on Main Street that happens between Noah and this uh, gangster that lives in Houston. And I won't tell you what happens. As far as the gunfight goes, you have to read that for yourself. But uh, chapter 8. Chapter 8 starts like this. The boy Sanchez sang softly but clearly as the red globe of the sun settled on the horizon to the west, casting long shadows of him and his horse before him. He knew not the meaning or the history of the song he sang. To him, it was just an old tune he'd heard in his youth. Still, the spirit of the song seemed to have a life of its very own, and the music stirred within the boy some sort of pride he did not comprehend. This land's not your land, this land is our land, from Nacogdoches to the Piney Woodlands, from Old Laredo to the Northern Prairie, this land will always be free. Those filthy commies, they came a-threatenin'. They told us that we better listen. They stomped and shouted. They sent their federals. We told them we'd always be free. Then came the fightin' and the dividin', the years of murders and occupation, the bloody battles, the camps, the hidin'. We told them we'd always be free. Three generations, ten million murdered. We kept on fightin', we kept on dyin'. We made it cost them so dear they doubted. We fought and died, but we died free. We finally beat them, and they retreated. We won our freedom. They were defeated. But what remained was all ruin and ashes. Still, we'll always be free. As the group neared the gap in the hills, he let the song turn first into a whisper, then to silence. And the ghosts of Texas took up a silent chorus that could be heard only in the rustling of the wind through the pecan trees, blue bonnets, and mesquite the trickling water from a string, the muted calls of the mockingbirds and the lowing of wild cattle. So this introduction gives you a vision of what happened before in the the civil war that is mentioned um, in the prologue. You have this, this civil war and this genocide that takes place in Texas between Texas and the federal government. Um, and Texas isn't the only state involved in this, uh, but this is the history that the young boy Sanchez, who's a, a new character that you meet, kind of has in his head from this song. He doesn't even know what the song's about. He, he just has it. And that's chapter 8, and I won't give anything else away. Chapter 9. Chapter 9 introduction is long, and so I'm not going to read all of chapter 9 introduction. I'm just going to explain what's going on in it, because it's a lot of uh, dialogue. But chapter 9 introduction takes place back in the old world again, 
and this time we're at Columbia University in New York, and the year is 2041, and the, the focal point of this introduction is a college professor, and he's teaching this class to graduate students, and he opens his class by telling them that the left, the, the progressive left, the Marxist left, has always been wrong about one thing, and this has kind of kept them from succeeding. And he says this thing they've always been wrong about is this idea that they can, they can change human nature on a social level if they just have enough power. And he tells all these students that that's foolish and that they're all wrong and that all of the people that they despise from Western civilization were actually right and that human nature is inherent and you can't change it. And of course, this pisses a lot of them off and a lot of them stomp out of the classroom until there's only a few left. And then the professor asks them if this means that they can't achieve their goals. And then one of the more clever students says, well, no, this doesn't mean that we can't win, basically. And then uh, goes on a little further, and at the very end of the semester, you see the professor looking over these, basically, I don't want to call it a research paper, because it's not, but he's looking over these prospectuses of his students' projects for the entire semester. And the project is to create a small uh, tribe, basically, of people who believe in um, some sort of religion, who are organized along kind of Darwinian patriarchal societal lines and basically a culture to replace the culture of the West, of, of modern times, a primitive culture to save humanity from global warming. Because, of course, if everybody goes back to living a, a primitive lifestyle where they don't use fossil fuels anymore, then this is the only way we can save the planet. And the last paper he looks at is by his kind of star student, and he likes everything about it except for the name of this tribe she's going to create, and that name is the Night Watchers. And the implication here is that all of these students actually did go out and create these groups of people who, after a few generations, devolved into primitive societies, um, and that's how we ended up with a lot of these organized savage tribes like the Night Watchers, like the Trackers, and some others. So not every savage tribe you run across in the book series was socially engineered, but a lot of them were, and it added to the chaos that we heard about in the book's opening. Okay, that's all about that chapter. Let's fast forward to the next chapter. And the next chapter is chapter 10. Chapter 10 is just a short, sweet little poem. It says, The badger burrows down into the earth. The coon hides in the hollow cottonwood. The dove takes to the sky. The snake wedges itself under a rock. 
but on the open prairie there is nowhere for a man to hide. And I just wrote that because I've lived my entire life on the plains, and I always imagined what it would be like to be somebody from, you know, a very wooded area, or somebody who lived in the woods all their life, or one of the frontiersmen who lived back east and suddenly came out west and started a a homestead, and how weird and vulnerable they must have felt with no tree cover. Because I've lived a lot of different places around the United States, and being from the plains, I always feel better on the plains because I can always see what might be coming. But I imagine people who live in the woods feel like there's no place to hide because when I lived in the woods, I felt like people were hiding behind the trees and stuff. So anyways, just kind of a, I don't know, there's something to be said for where you're born kind of shapes how you view geography to some extent. That's probably an idea I'm going to take into a, into another story sometime in the future. All right, chapter 11. Chapter 11 introduction starts, There's a law out here in the West. It's a little known one, but it will teach you a lot about the folks that live out here. You come across a rattlesnake on the trail, you kill it. If you let it pass, the snake might slither off never to be seen again. Or he might be on that trail tomorrow and bite a wandering stranger or a child. There just ain't no way to know. So you kill it. And this is just a... I don't know. This is the way I grew up out here in Panhandle of Oklahoma and a lot of uh, ranchers and farmers and everybody that I know. uh, It's part of the reason people carry pistols in their truck because if you run across a rattlesnake, you shoot the rattlesnake because they're hell on dogs and cattle and horses and people. My mom was actually bit by one a few years back and it's uh, it's more expensive than you think, anti-venom, for rattlesnakes. But I'm not going to tell you why it's about rattlesnakes. you got to read that for yourself. Chapter 12 introduction, very short and simple. The stars at night are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. And you just got to read that chapter to see what, what that one's about. Chapter 13. Chapter 13 starts like this. I met a traveler from an antique land who said... Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half-sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them, the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings, Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Now, I can't take credit for that because that is Percy Shelley, and it's an old poem from one of the Romantics. But the reason I use it is because, a lot of people probably don't know this, in Amarillo, Texas, there is a statue that is supposed to be a kind of a satirical play on Percy Shelley's poem here of the the Ozymandias King of Kings. And I'm not much of a, 
I'm not a lover of poems. I'm not a big fan. But this is one that I do like, and it's probably my favorite poem. And I like it because of the the irony of it. This this Ozymandias, king of kings, look on my works and despair. And then nothing is left of his works. And I like that also because that is just right in line with the tone and tenor of the entire book series, because you have all of us people who live in the moment, who look around at everything that our civilization and society is built, and we think that we are these great kind of king of kings, and then no one will ever be as mighty as we are. And then if you, I don't know, if you have just a little bit of common sense, and you think about it just a little bit, you'll realize that in a couple thousand years, all of this stuff that we're so proud of probably won't be here anymore. That seems to be the way of great empires of the past, and that is what Percy Shelley is saying about old King Ozymandias. He he thinks that he was mighty, and he tells everyone to despair because they're not, they'll never be as mighty as he is. But then ironically you should still despair because even if you turn out as mighty and as amazing as Ozymandias, in the end, you're all just lone and level sand stretching far away. All right, 14. The last chapter of book one, chapter 14, starts like this. A few teardrops seem trivial when they fall upon the surface of the ocean. Tears, true tears, real tears, especially the, che- the tears of a child, are no trivial thing. Within them, you might see all the great woe of mankind since the garden and the fall. In fact, of the precious little we know of heaven, we do know that it is a place absent of tears. So take heed when you see a child cry real tears of grief and anguish. Within those teardrops is the weighty truth of human existence. So, chapter 14 opens like that because at the very end of book one, the entirety of book one follows almost only Noah and Evelyn and the people around them. And at the very end of book one, you get a change of scene to Evelyn's younger brother, who is the only surviving member of her family and who is hundreds and hundreds of miles away, still on the refugee ship, that Evelyn was kind of separated from and left behind. And Adam, her younger brother, is sitting kind of on the bow of the ship and crying because his father, his mother, his brother, everybody that is he's ever known, basically, because his entire family is gone. And as far as he knows, they're all dead. And he has nobody left in the world except for these soldiers from the boat who he is kind of uh, adopted by. And these soldiers are called the Ravens. And uh, you get introduced again at the end. You meet them at the very beginning of the book, and you get introduced to them again at the very end of the book. And the hint is that as we go into book two, the story is going to widen dramatically because this is more of a story than just... Evelyn and Noah trying to make their way on foot to Alaska, where they think New Hope is. It is a story of 
It's a global story of new hope and new hope's struggle against this rising threat. Because the the reveal at the end of the book is that the old world government, the genocidal maniacs that were kind of behind all this, have reemerged and are setting out to finish what they started a century and a half ago. And what they had started was depopulation of the planet, reducing the human population to somewhere around 500 million or less because they've convinced themselves that's the only way to save the planet is to kill billions and billions of people, which was the inception for the entire book because I think that logically, if you really, really buy in to all the climate change stuff and you believe that the world is going to be destroyed because it's overpopulated. Um, and then if you're, if you're clever enough to understand that all of the, the climate change legislation and carbon taxes aren't going to actually do anything because nobody's actually going to abide by them on a global level, well, then the only logical answer is to commit the genocide of billions of people. And if you really, really believe that that's the only way to save humanity... Well then, you're in quite a pickle, aren't you? Um, this is why I think that the climate, the church of the climate is the most dangerous threat facing our generation and the generations right under me. Millennials, Gen Z, whoever's after that. The, the greatest threat, kind of the, the thing that might be our World War II, our Hitler, our eugenics because eugenics and the scientific idea of eugenics kind of indirectly led to all the, or a lot of the horrors of World War Two and World War One and Two, really. And I think that uh, climate change and the climate church and the climate cult are probably our version of that and will end with something just as horrific, if not more horrific. And that's what the book's about. So, go pick up a copy. It will be available mid-month, probably January 15th, maybe a little later in the month. I'm supposed to get my... I ordered uh, sample copies to check the quality of the artwork and stuff, and then as soon as I check that out and see if it is good, then I will get this book out there and released. And then uh, I'm thinking later in the year I'll probably do book two, and then at the end of the year, I will release book three. That way, by, by 2024, one year from now, when I'm talking to you again, we'll have accomplished another goal, uh, and we can start on something new. But that's all I have time for tonight. Um, later, next uh, couple weeks from now, I'll do another episode. I think that I want to do another audiobook episode. I have a Western short story that... I wrote a while back that hasn't been published anywhere and nobody's really ever read it or heard it. So I'm thinking I might do that at the end of the month instead of a book study. But uh, we'll see how I feel about that. I need to read through it and and see if it is, is up to quality, up to 2023 quality, because 2023 is going to be the year of podcast excellence. So see you guys next time. Thanks for your time.